Some of you may not remember this. About a decade ago, there was a popular movie. It was called The Da Vinci Code. It was a big uh, movie star, uh, Tom Hanks, was in it. But it set off quite a debate uh, within mainstream Christianity. It took the position that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. You remember that? Some of you may have heard about it or seen it. I think Dr. Meredith even mentioned it a time or two back, back in those days. And that they still had children around somewhere. And they were on this great search or something to, to find who the children of Jesus and Mary Magdalene were. And of course, the movie and the book that it was taken from were fiction. It was a fictional thing. It was a, a novel and frankly blasphemous. And you could imagine being that way, it was naturally a big success at the Box office, wasn't it? Of course it was. They made a ton of money on the thing. But it was very successful in that regard. The storyline was taken from a theory, though, that some still believe today. There was another book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and that presents the same theory. It's been roundly debunked by scholars a number of times, but it kind of keeps popping up. Let me just give you some examples. I was reading... Uh, not too long ago, and um, I was looking on the Internet doing some research, and I came up with this uh, article in the Huffington Post, which is kind of left-leaning publication. But the name of the article was, Jesus' marriage to Mary Magdalene is fact, not fiction. Oh, well, that sounds authoritative, doesn't it? Let me just, well, I'm going to take a few excerpts from this and see what you think. Mary the Magdalene went to Jesus' tomb to prepare his body for burial. Then and now, no woman would touch the naked body of a dead rabbi unless she was family. Jesus was whipped and beaten, crucified. No woman would wash the blood and sweat off unless she was his wife. Well, what do you think? Why would Mary Magdalene go to prepare his body for burial unless there was a relationship there? Well, of course, unless you know your Bible a little bit, then you can find out very quickly, because he fails to mention that there were three women who went. Remember? That was, uh, let me just read Mark 16.1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother, mother of James, and Salome brought spices uh, that they might anoint him. Now was he married to all three, that they would do that? Or... Um, he certainly wasn't married to Mary, the mother of James. So all you have to do is just look up a few things and you could see something presented very authoritatively, sometimes eh, maybe not so much so. Just another point, another quick point here. It says, Jesus was a rabbi. It said, another quote from this article, rabbis then and now are married. If Jesus wasn't married, someone would have noticed Now, that's a heavy argument there. Well, Jesus was a rabbi. It said it in both of those quotes, didn't it? But he wasn't a Levitical priest. He was of Judah, not a priest. He was a rabbi because he was a teacher. That's what the word means. They're equating rabbi with Levitical priest, which is wrong. All you have to do is read your Bible to know that. Oh, let's see. There was one other here. Uh, the 13th century A.D., Gnostic Gospel of Philip. I'm sorry, third century. I say third, third century A.D. Gnostic 
Gospel of Philip. It is apocryphal, meaning it is fiction, but it does indicate it, 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 uh, that Jesus kissed Mary. That's what it said. Oh, Jesus kissed Mary. Well, there was a kissing all the time went on there. There was a holy kiss. We kiss each other. Everybody kisses each other. I still kiss my son sometimes. Even the bearded one. <laughs> so that doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything. What do you think? What do you think? Was Jesus married? Just curious. How many of you think that Jesus was not married? How many? Not married. How many think that Jesus was not? Trick question. Trick question. I got you, didn't I? I set you up. I set you up. The purpose of this sermon today is to show you that the Bible proves that Jesus was married and divorced, as a matter of fact, and he plans to remarry. It's the central doctrine of the church. Usually people who ask, do you know the Lord, brother, do you know the Lord? They actually don't really know his true identity, but we do. We do understand that. And hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll know the Lord maybe a little more comprehensively than you did before. You married folks like me. When you said your vows, said your vows, you were vowing. You said, I do or I will. You made a contract. You made a covenant with your wife. Well, today we're going to look at God's covenant with physical and spiritual Israel from the perspective of a marriage covenant. We'll look at it from the perspective of a marriage covenant. To understand Jesus' marriage, you must understand his identity in the Old Testament. So the title of today's sermon is, Was Jesus Married? Point number one. Point number one. Let's contrast or look at the historical Jesus and the Jesus of the Bible. Now, religionists have long had an argument with scholars and skeptics about whether Jesus existed as a, of a figure in history. Some people say, and I read something the other day, said Jesus did not exist. The man never existed. He was never there. Well, that ignores considerable evidence by non-biblical writers of the first century and um, around that time, like Josephus. He was an authoritative Jewish historian. And for example, um, let me just give a few things for your notes here. Jo- Josephus made in book 20, chapter 9.1, and book 18, chapter fi- uh, 5.2. Those are considered by most scholars to be authentic. Also, for an example, there's the authoritative Roman historian Tacitus. He referred to Jesus in Here's another reference just for your notes for you folks who like to check things out. Annals 15.44 in the early 2nd century A.D. That would be very roughly comparable to a historian today commenting on, say, something that Roosevelt did or Churchill did about that same period, time period of difference. Let me just read what Tacitus wrote. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Christus, founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, in the reign of Tiberius. 
But the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. He was a big fan of Christianity, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. But he was recording what was known to have happened who had known to be true, a big movement in Judea that had spread all over and had even come to Rome. Well, the gospel writers, of course, and the apostle Paul were approximate contemporaries of Jesus, and they recorded what they knew to be true. Also, the apostle Paul was quite alive when Jesus taught and clearly knew about his life and ministry. Did Paul think Jesus was a myth? No, he didn't. He knew that he lived. He knew that it was a major movement, and that's why he was persecuting the Christians of his day. Okay, there's another false view, not saying that Jesus didn't exist, but rather that Jesus is considered to be a historical person who was later mythicized over time. In other words, there's an actual person there But then over the following centuries, a lot of mythology built up around Jesus. And then that's what we see today. Well, Tacitus kind of uh, debunked that when he confirmed that there was a large movement based on Jesus' life and teachings. There actually was a man and a great movement and, of course, um, a great many people in very large numbers, observed what Jesus did during his ministry. That's why there was a movement. That's why it succeeded and continued on. So to just summarize point number one, the problem for some in getting involved solely in the historicity of Jesus' life is that it introduces an error into people's thinking uh, about Jesus by treating the historical Jesus. There was a man who lived and walked the streets of Judea and the roads of Judea in his day, and also the biblical Jesus. They distinguish between the two of them because the biblical Jesus is miraculous. He's miraculous. He caused great miracles to happen. He healed the sick. He died and was resurrected. He was born of a virgin. So they believe that there was a historical Jesus, yes, and they talk about him, and maybe he had some teachings that were really nice, But the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of faith, they view differently. This is the error that some critics make, and some religious religionists rather also, that the historical Jesus and the Jesus of faith should and can be viewed differently. For the church, the biblical Jesus of faith and the historical Jesus are the same individual. It will treat them that way in the sermon today. So point number two. Point number two. Let's take a close look at the biblical Jesus as the Bible presents him. His identity is quite different from what orthodox or mainstream Christianity usually presents. And this is going to be really uh, a lot of Bible study here. We're going to have quite a few scriptures. Some we'll look up, some I'll just read so that you can have them in your notes. And when I say Orthodox Christianity, I'm uh, just as a 
Technical point, I'm referring to little o orthodox Christianity, meaning mainstream Christianity as opposed to Eastern Orthodox or so forth. We are non-Orthodox in our belief. So Jesus as creator. Let's look at a few things on that. Jesus as creator. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 22. Familiar scripture to everyone, I'm sure, but let's turn there. We're going to look at a number of scriptures. We'll begin with this. I'm sorry, verse 26, rather, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and then let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so forth. Also, a little bit later on in verse 20, chapter 3 and verse 22, he says, Behold, the man has come like one of us. In other words, there's more than one individual, more than one person involved in this creative process. Now let's go over to John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 and verse 10. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 and verse 10. Once again, familiar scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 3, and all things, yes, yeah, verse 3, all things were made by Him, and everything that He made was made, was made, by and through him. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. An ironic statement. It did not know its own creator when he came. Verse 23. And John, then we'll turn to John 10:33. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. The Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. The word there is, um, is Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's Yahweh, the eternal. That's who came to visit Judea in those days. John chapter 10 and verse 33. John chapter 10 and verse 33. And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. He didn't deny it. He was God come in the flesh. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9. I'm going to run through just a number of scriptures here so that you can see the weight of this in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9. 
and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. He was the creator. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Colossians chapter 1, and verses 16 through 18. This is kind of Wakefield's Bible aerobics class, so keep your wrists limbered up. We don't want any repetitive motion injuries. Verse 16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he might have, in all things, he might have preeminence. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Let me just read a few more here to make a, a reference here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. God, who at various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Hebrews 11, 3. I'll read it. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen, are not made of things which are visible. We saw that in a very good Tomorrow's World telecast, just played during the sermon that time. 2 Peter 3, 5, By the word of God the heavens were of old in ancient times. He created them that way. Luke chapter 4, verse 12. This is interesting. This is, this is evidence... By Jesus, you can turn there if you like. Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And Satan is tempting him, trying to get him to um, sin. But Jesus responds, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Shut him down. Shut Satan down. Blew him away with the breath of his lips. Well, he was quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. There, Lord is the eternal, Yahweh. Jesus referred to himself as the God of the Old Testament, the Creator. And Satan didn't dispute it. He knew who he was talking to. So to summarize point number two, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of faith, is clearly the one by whom all things were made, the Creator, the Eternal, Yahweh Elohim. He was actually God in the flesh. Okay, point number three. Let's look at that a little bit more. Let's follow up on that some more. Once again, a number of scriptures. Christ the Messiah is Yahweh, and the Messiah is Yahweh in the flesh. I'm going to use the word Yahweh here a few times uh, just to 
sort of be sure you know who I'm talking about. I'm not going off into sacred names, anything like that. I'm referring to the eternal Jehovah in some Bibles. Orthodox Christianity has a difficult time understanding who Jesus was before his human birth for several reasons. One is that they assume that God is a trinity of three beings and that the one that we find in the Old Testament is the Father. That's what they generally think. And of course, that is incorrect. Then they assume that the Jesus, that Jesus who came was one member of the Trinity, had been like maybe hiding out for a long time there, and then he came to undo all the damage that his father's harsh old law did. You can find that. I mean, that may be kind of a, of a an unfair way of stating it, but really that's kind of the way a great many people think. Biblically, Christ and the eternal of the Old Testament are the same individual. And in point number two, we read some scriptures that reference that. But let's do a little more Bible study here. A little more Bible study. John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1 and verse 18. Take a little different tack on it this time. This is kind of a little thing that some of our friends in mainstream Christianity don't ever quite get. Let's read this scripture. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Well, wait a minute. That can't be. People saw God all the time in Old Testament times. How could that be? Is this a contradiction somehow? John chapter 6 and verse 46. John chapter 6 and verse 46. In fact, some people point this out as a contradiction in the Bible. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God. He has seen the Father. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 24, verse 10. And I bet you some of you know where I'm going. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 10. We're talking about marriage today. You know, there are three parts to a Hebrew marriage, and you know, we have three parts to marriage today. There's the engagement, and then the vows, and then the wedding supper. We just had a marriage of our daughter back in February. We had all three parts there, and of course, there's the marriage of, 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 what we see here in the Old Testament of God to Israel, a kind of marriage, also had these parts. Let's see. Beginning in verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. They're going up for a marriage supper. They've already had the vows, and Israel said, I do. Verse 10. And they... What? What does it say? They saw the God of Israel. And that was under his feet, as it was, were a paved work of sapphire stone, and it were the, the body of heaven in its clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand, and they saw God, and did eat and drink. They didn't die. Can you imagine what a wedding supper that was? 
but a wedding supper that will be one of these days in the future. Just a few more, Deuteronomy 34 and verse 10. Deuteronomy 34 and verse 10. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel, like unto Moses, whom the Lord, that is the eternal Yahweh, knew face to face. Did he have his eyes closed the whole time, Moses? He saw him. He was called the, um, he was very close to God and saw him. And of course, Abraham saw him as well and was called the friend of God. Numbers 12, 8. Numbers 12, 8. Once again, a number of scriptures giving testimony to the fact that people have seen the God of Israel. Let's see. Now, Miriam has had an indiscretion, and she has criticized Moses, and she is being corrected for it. Verse 8, with him I will speak mouth to mouth, even even apparently, and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So, God himself said that, Moses saw his likeness. Just another one, uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Eternal is the Messiah. God is going to come or has come as the Messiah, as a man. This is given testimony of in the Old Testament. Verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will, will be saved. Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called. All right, here's the name of the Messiah, or a name that he will be. The Lord, our righteousness. Hebrew, Yahweh, Sidquinu. There it is again. The eternal is the Messiah himself. I'll just read for you Genesis 32.30. Genesis 32.30. You can turn there if you like. adds a little extra thing here. He says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Exodus 33, 20 through 23. Exodus 33, 20 through 23. We should note 
that no one can see God in his glory and survive. You cannot see God in his glory and survive. He was presenting himself to people, but not in his glory. Let's see what this says. This explains it. But he said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. That's why they're commenting, hey, I've seen God, but I'm still alive. And the Lord said, verse 21, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be when my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So that explains why people were so concerned about dying when they saw the eternal. You took your life in your hands unless he made it possible for you to see him without his glory. The individual that Abraham befriended uh, befriended was the eternal Christ, not the Father. And frankly, as my opinion, that's how he learned God's laws, statutes, and commandments as well. To summarize point number three, clearly the Bible presents us with Jesus the Messiah as the God of the Old Testament, whom Abraham and Moses and others saw and had a personal relationship with. But Jesus explicitly stated that no one had ever seen the Father, and the Father was not the one who appeared to Abraham and Moses. Jesus the Christ said explicitly that he came to reveal the Father. So let's look at that one next. Point number four, a brief point. Christ came to reveal the Father. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. It is necessary for Christ to reveal the Father to us, and that was one of the reasons why he came. They had never known the Father before, but the Father wants us to know him. Matthew 11, verse 27 No man knows the Father but the Son, and to whom the Son will reveal him. John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. When Jesus was explaining these things to the disciples, they were saying, well, the Father, the Father, who is this Father? Can you... Tell us about this Father. We don't know who you mean by this. Verse 8, And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Well, why did Jesus say that? Why did he put it that way? Well, John chapter 3 and verse 34, it says, Jesus had God's spirit without measure, without measure. Their characters, their, person, their personalities, everything about them were the same. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. Look at what he said. Look at how he lived, what he taught. And you could know the Father that way. They are absolutely of one accord. Just one other thing to mention. 
that Jesus is also Melchizedek of the Old Testament. He appeared that way to Abraham. I'm not going to go into that point because there's an article that's going to appear in the September-October of of this year, uh, edition of the Living Church News, on the order of Melchizedek. It's a very well-written article. (laughs) And a very well-edited article, too, by the way, I'll say. But the Messiah is Melchizedek, who is also Yahweh of the Old Testament. To summarize point number four, because no one has ever seen the Father, Christ came to reveal him, and we can know the Father through Christ. Our Heavenly Father wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. He wants to talk to you. He he says, can we talk? Maybe we can talk, you know, when we pray. A lot of times just tell your Heavenly Father what's going on. Christ said in his model prayer, Address him, our Father who is in heaven. So we address the Father. We can address Christ, but he said, address the Father, speak to him. I'm sure you parents are like me. When I talk to my kids, they spread out a good bit now, but I just like to hear what's going on in their lives when they tell me. And I get on the phone with a, a daughter here or someone over there, visit one of my kids, or they visit me. I just like to hear the details of their life and find out what's going on. Well, your Heavenly Father is the same way, but maybe a whole lot more. When you pray, talk to Him. Tell Him what's going on. Tell Him your feelings. Tell Him your concerns. Thank Him for the details, all the little things. He wants to talk. He wants a relationship with you. That's why Christ came to reveal Him to you so that you would know. That's one of the things He wants from us. That should be a relationship with us and our Heavenly Father. Point number five, once again a brief point. We're talking about the identities of Christ. This is Christ as the rock. Christ as the rock. Second Samuel 22, verses 2 and 3. Second Samuel, verse 22, chapter 22 rather, verses 2 and 3. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock and him will I trust. He is my shield, the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior, thou savest me from violence. He is a rock to us. He, we can stand on this. He is a high tower of strength. He protects us. Similarly with Deuteronomy 32, Verses 3 and 4, Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. He is called this, a rock and a support, something that is immovable in our lives. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. And miss verse 3, I'll go back. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe you greatness to our God. And then verse 4, he is the rock. He is a rock and a support for us all. 
Now let's go and find this rock in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. Let's begin in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you would be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud of the sea. So they were in spiritual, they were in physical uh, Egypt, which was a type of spiritual Egypt, the sin of the world. They passed through the sea, a type of baptism. Pharaoh pursued after them as their sins almost, and then they were destroyed, washed away in the, in the sea, and they went straight out to marry their maker. Verse 3, And all did eat that same spiritual meat, and, all, uh, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that word um, followed is went with them. And, in your margins. That spiritual rock went with them and was with them all the way. And that rock was Christ. The one who was with Israel as they went out through the wilderness was Christ, the one who came in the flesh. Matthew 18 Rather, Matthew 16, verse 15 through 18. Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18. Christ is quizzing his disciples. They've been out talking to everyone. He wants to teach them a lesson and find out what they are thinking and what's going on. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said to him, answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, or a stone, and on this rock, referring to himself, Petra, bedrock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the grave, shall not prevail against it. Point number five. Yahweh, the rock, is Christ. The rock is the Messiah. And we can trust safely in him. Okay, we're finally getting around to the marriage here in point number six. We've been identifying Christ in the Old Testament. And now let's look at Christ, the husband of Israel. Turn to Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. This is a marriage ceremony. And this is Israel saying, I do. The wife Israel is saying, I do. Verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of all the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. 
And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to these words. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. And this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 10. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. But this was a rough marriage, a rough marriage. I'm afraid it went on the rocks pretty early on. The Eternal's wife engaged in extreme infidelity. In fact, on the honeymoon, by making an idol. Number six, And the Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it and said, um, uh, saw it, and then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I put her away. I had put her away and given her, there it is, a certificate of divorce. By putting her away, he is giving her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear and went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass, through her casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees, referring to the idols that they had carved. And then, uh, verse 10, And yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Isaiah 50 and verse 1, getting around to Judah now. Remember that Isaiah was a prophet in Judah, in Judea. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? There it is again. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions, Your mother has been put away. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 2. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 2. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, the minor prophets. The marriage on the rocks. 
Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of my sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. But the eternal's marriage, of course, was on God's standards, not humanity's. So while he had divorced Israel, the meaning of the divorce was that he had permanently put her away so that they were no longer in a husband and life relationship. The marriage itself, of course, had not been fully and completely ended. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Jeremiah chapter 3. Verse 11 through 15. God pleaded for his wife to return to him. Let's just read verse 14. As we said before, return, O backsliding Israel, says the Lord, for I am married to you, and I will take you from a city. Uh, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8. God allowed Israel to have divorce. He allows us to have divorce today. But God's standard for marriage is that it is for life. And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. With him, it's not the way it is, and he doesn't change. He allowed them to do it, but that is not something that he likes for himself or will permit for himself. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16. You often heard Dr. Meredith repeat this. That God hates divorce. He hates it. We're going to see a little more thoroughly the reasons why in just a little bit. Verse 15. But did he not make them one having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. In the eternal's righteousness... He put away Israel, his wife, but the marriage could only be completely ended by his death. That is what completely ends a marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39. Here Paul is giving this instruction to the church in Corinth. He says, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whomever, to whom she desires or whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So 
Once a marriage, uh, once a person dies, rather, then, then the marriage is terminated. It is no longer binding on the party that survives it. Now let's look at Zechariah chapter 11, verse 10 through 13. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 10 through 13. A prophecy of the death of God. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. He was going to die to end the covenant. Verse 11. And was broken in that day, so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Verse 12 and 13, interesting, showing you the context of who this is talking about. Verse 12, and I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed my price, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, cast it into the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. That actually happened to Jesus the Messiah. And his death ended the covenant. You know, some say God is dead. God is dead. Well, no, he died. He did die and was resurrected. He did it to end his marriage. And now he has been resurrected to live forever with a new wife. Isaiah 54 Eight through four through eight. Isaiah fifty four verses four through eight. <clears throat> Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither shall you be confounded, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood, the widowhood of Israel. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is your name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, for the Lord has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when you were refused, says the Lord. For a small moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. He will gather Israel again. He will gather them and bring them back because of a promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A little wrath and a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And that can be interpreted alternating between a physical and spiritual Israel. Today we're looking at Christ's covenant with the children of Israel and his church from the perspective of a marriage. The Eternal made an unconditional promise 
to return Israel to the promised land. That's um, uh, that's certainly given in Scripture. And he will honor his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you know, they must be alive in the millennial age. Israel has to be alive. He says he is going to, it's going to be a terrible time. The trouble will come on Jacob. The church often preaches that. But he will bring them back that because he has made an unconditional promise to do so. But in order to marry the resurrected spiritual Israel, he had to end his marriage and a national covenant with physical Israel. That necessitated the one, the death of one party, one of the party. And it had to be him. It had to be him. Otherwise, he could never have fulfilled his promises. So the God of Israel died, not the children of Israel, in an important sense. And I found this very interesting. Christ died for both physical and spiritual Israel so that he can keep his promises to both. An interesting little angle on that. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6. And this view that I just presented to you um, allows a somewhat different take on this scripture in Malachi. I'm sorry, that's Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Let's look at that in the context of what I just said. Verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. That means he does not vary. His character doesn't change, he does not lie, he does not change his mind, he does not change his plan, he does not vary. He keeps all of his promises. Continuing, therefore, because of that, because he does not change, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. He's going to bring them back to keep his promise. Therefore, they are not consumed. For more information on the marriage of the Lamb, if you would like to, turn uh, go back to the September-October 2012 uh, Living Church News article, September-October 2012. Mr. Ames wrote, The saints will stand before God's throne in heaven. Very good article to review. And also he gave a similar sermon by the same title, sermon number 712. Sermon 712 on that subject. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 12, in verse 1 through 5. The promises to Abraham. God instructed him, this was conditional, he said, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and recurse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham departed. He left and went out. When Christ died, he made it possible for the sins of all peoples to be forgiven. The whole earth, all the families of the earth are blessed in Christ and to be made holy by God's Holy Spirit. And he opened the way for the whole world to enter spiritual Israel and to live forever as the children of God and the bride of Christ. 
Physical Israel was saturated with sin and guilt. But the Israel of God, the church, the eternal's new bride, is guiltless and sinless and will be sinless forever. She must be sinless in holiness and holy in order to be resurrected to immortality when he comes. He will be, she will be rather, his, her, his immortal, holy, perfect bride. And to accomplish that, he had to die for her. He took her sins, our sins, the world's sins, on himself, and then he died with them, making it possible for us to live. Isaiah 66, verse 7 and 10. Isaiah 66, verse 7 and 10. The birth of Israel. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Referring to Christ. Who has heard such things? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. The resurrected church. Shall I bring to birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says your God. Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her and all that mourn for her. A nation born. Revelation 21, 9. And let's find her. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. The Lamb's wife. Christ, as the Eternal, entered into a marriage covenant with the nation of Israel at Sinai. And we have been looking at their relationship from that perspective. Israel, in effect, committed adultery on the honeymoon and thus began this tumultuous relationship in which her husband said that she was engaged in so much infidelity she was acting as a casual harlot, a casual prostitute with other gods. He finally put her away and gave her a bill of divorce, but this happened on God's spiritual level. So they continued to be bound by the marriage um, and which could only be ended by death. If all Israel died, then the promises to Abraham could not be fulfilled, so it was Yahweh himself, the Eternal himself, who had to die. In doing so, he made it possible for the birth of the resurrected Israel of God. That's you, the church, and his marriage to her. What love, what love, what meticulous adherence and faithfulness to his promises. He is truly holy and righteous and just. Point number seven. Point number seven. Human marriage is a picture of a greater spiritual reality. 
Human marriage is a picture of a greater spiritual reality. Just happened to have a photo here. Ooh, pretty girl, pretty girl. It's a picture of my wife. This is taken a little while back. I just took it out of one of our photo albums. You know, if you saw this, you would say, oh, yeah, there's, there's Marcia. I recognize her. The facial proportions are the same. You can tell by looking at it. So you get a sense of recognition when you see it, for sure. Uh, but, you know, this picture is flat, two-dimensional. It looks like her, but let me tell you, does it, does it say anything to me? Does it kiss me on the cheek? Does it greet me when I come home with a big hug? Let me tell you, the reality that preceded this picture is really a lot better. It's wonderful. The preceding reality is more wonderful, much greater than the picture. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 33. Let's follow up on this picture a little bit, this thing of reality the greater reality, and then the picture. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Christ and the church. A husband is to love his own wife as his own body. Why? Because it pictures Christ and the church. The body of Christ is the church. When you love your wives as your own body, husbands, You're loving, you're acting in the image of a greater spiritual reality. Your marriage is a picture of that preceding spiritual reality. You know, when uh, God made Adam and Eve, he didn't look down on them and say, oh boy, that looks like a great relationship. I think I'll patent patent my uh, relationship with the church after that. That looks like fun to me. That wasn't it. Because his relationship with the church was planned from the beginning. It existed from before the earth was, before Adam and Eve was. And the things in the world are created in the form of those things. It's small wonder that Satan hates marriage so much. 1 Corinthians 15, 44 through 49. 1 Corinthians 15. 44 through 49. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, referring to Christ, the second Adam, was made a quickening, quickening spirit. However, that was not first which was spiritual, but after that um, 
that, but that which is natural, and after that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And we know that we will bear his image. So, we have the first Adam and the first Eve. And then we have the second Adam and the second Eve. The first Adam and Eve were tempted and sinned. The second Adam was tempted without sin. And the church must remain without sin and not be deceived as Eve was in the first case. Are the marriage of Christ and the other biblical family relationships merely allegories or analogies? You can read that throughout the commentaries. You can read it in encyclopedias. You know, we have father, son, brother, and husband, wife. Are we merely anthropomorphizing God with human characteristics that we know? That was kind of a big word. Let's go back over that. There's a couple of highfalutin words here. We're going to do anthropomorphic. That means putting human characteristics on physical things, like, say, a laughing brook or an angry storm or a cruel wind. Well, that's anthropomorphizing air when you talk about an angry storm or a cruel wind. Well, what about theomorphic? Well, that's putting divine characteristics onto physical things. You know, a theologian in our former association said, and this is a quote, this is a quote. The familial relationships of God are anthropomorphic. Okay? The familial relationships of God, we're talking to father, son, husband, wife, that we speak of, are anthropomorphic. We are putting human things onto God. He's not really that way. The guy said so. And most theologians believe that. They believe that when we talk about a Father in heaven, we are putting our relationships onto God, and that He is not really that way. He's not really something we can know. He's spiritual. Well, they got it exactly backwards. Exactly backwards. God is not like man. Man is like God. Mankind is in the image of God, not the other way around. The Bible and God's church teach this. The familial relationships of man are theomorphic. The familial relationships that we have are God putting divine images, greater spiritual realities, the preceding greater reality, like the the person and the picture. He's putting those images on us, preparing us for the great future that he has for us, inheriting the universe. That's what he's doing. God put divine pictures into his creation for us to understand what he is doing. Our understanding of that is the reverse of that in the world. In Revelation 13, 8, Christ is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In Titus 1, 2, Paul wrote, In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. Christ's marriage, relationship with the church, existed before time began. The greater spiritual reality. And that is what we are coming to. That's what we need to understand about the marriage covenant. 
So we see this picture being acted out from Genesis to Revelation. Starts here in the very beginning, Adam and Eve. And then it goes to Revelation, the marriage of the Lamb. First, the first Adam and Eve to um, their marriage and then the marriage of God to the Israel of God. There's a Tomorrow's World reference. You can read it in it. God is creating the family. That's March, April of 2004. The Tomorrow's World for that. You know, some secularists like to say that the Bible is a book written by men for men. Have you ever heard that before? Bible is a book written by men for men. That is actually a saying that people have. Well, boy, did they get that wrong. They really got that wrong. In fact, from cover to cover, the Bible is a book about a woman. First Israel, then the Israel of God. It's the book about a woman and her relationship with her husband. First, married to physical Israel and then spiritual Israel, the bride of Christ. The Bible is the only book that I know that's written from the point of view of a deity. It's the way a deity sees the world. It's the way the deity sees mankind. It's the way a deity sees past and future history, future history being prophecy. Cover to cover, writer after writer, century after century, all thinking the same things. And one of the things they are thinking, one of the major things is this marriage relationship between the Creator with physical Israel and then spiritual Israel. The Israel of God is there from cover to cover. It's what it's about. So we have seen that Jesus was married. We've seen that he was divorced. He ended his marriage by his death. And then having been resurrected, he's planning to remarry. And because he is righteous, he's going to take good care of his widow. But doing all that he promised the whole time. But the people who argue over whether or not Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, oh please, they are clueless. Absolutely clueless. <laughs> he, he couldn't. He couldn't have been. He was already married and had been for over a thousand years. That's the biblical Jesus. And the Jesus who lived on the earth are the same one. Someone may ask you, do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Well, the people who ask that question often don't know the Lord very well sometimes, do they? But you know who Jesus of Nazareth is. The Word, Yahweh the Old Testament, the dying and resurrected Messiah, and the glorified King of Kings, who is the future husband of the immortal and glorified spiritual Israel, the Bride of Christ. So let's keep in mind who he was, who died for us, and who it is who lives in us, and who it is who is coming to give birth to and to marry his church.